0: Yes, the agricultural revolution in prehistory was, you can pay £85 hard back and you find out at the end, that I don't know why foragers became farmers. <laughs> um, anyway, as of about three days ago, you, you only have to spend £26, I think, and get it in paperback, so right. It was incredibly nice to be invited. Um, and as Mark said, I found I'm currently working in Libya on one project, looking at early prehistory, the kind of thing that was really covered with uh, the lecture last week by Chris Stringer. Um, But I've always had this interest in transitions to farming, and I've been working in Southeast Asia since 2000, and I'm involved there now, colleagues and so on, and so really I'm talking about the work of a whole bunch of us and the wider context. So I called it Footsteps, Clearings and Fields, Transitions to Farming in Ireland, Southeast Asia. The origins of agriculture have been debated by archaeologists for most of the discipline's history. For the Victorians, the beginnings of farming represented the critical rung on the ladder of progress that lifted humankind out of a life of primeval savagery, hunting and gathering, on a journey towards urbanism. Writing in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, and focusing mostly on the Near Eastern Europe, Gordon Child emphasised the advantages of farming over foraging, over hunting and gathering in terms of the opportunities it provided for sedentary life, population growth and surplus production. In the 1960s and 70s, ethnographic studies of present-day hunter-gatherers led to a reappraisal of the advantages of farming over foraging, the life of Paleolithic foragers being famously described by Marshall Salins as the original age of affluence, a more varied diet, less work, more leisure. The result was what Barbara Stark described as push theories that farming must have begun because foragers were propelled into it, in particular by population pressure stimulated by climatic change at the Pleistocene-Holocene transition, the change from the Ice Ages to the modern climatic era 10,000 years ago or so. By the 1980s, dissatisfaction with the underplaying of the potential role of social factors led to what Stark described as pull models Foragers started to rely on particular plants or animals in response to climatic and environmental change and as a result were drawn, unsuspecting as it were, into new relations of dependency. Social and ideological factors have been increasingly emphasised in the past two decades. Brian Hayden proposed in several papers that hunter-gatherer societies might have developed a commitment to farming within the context of social relations of obligation. Under pressure to maintain prestige amongst their followers, ambitious individuals might have been attracted to farming in order to obtain exotic, high-status foods for feasting events. Shifts in ideology have also been identified as another possible prime mover, for example, by Jacques Covan and Ian Hodder in the case of Southwest Asia, the Near East. With late Pleistocene foragers starting to see themselves in relation to the natural world in new ways of culturing the wild, foragers began to think like farmers, so they became farmers, a concept that in some respects the Victorians would have recognised... Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel remains a brilliant exposition of the orthodox view that farming began first in a few major centres of the world, notably in the Near East, China, Mesoamerica, the eastern United States, the western margins of South America and the African Sahel some 10,000 years ago, and that it was subsequently carried to much of the rest of the world by a process of population migration. Early farmers spread out from these halves of domestication taking with them a package of new technologies, especially pottery and new styles of polished stone tools, and domestic animals and or plants, and they use them to colonise new lands. Diamond usurping, in effect, the existing hunter-gatherers. I not come much into it. Diamond also made the link that several archaeologists have made, notably Peter Bellwood, in a number of papers, and brought together in 2004, in his first Farmers, The Origins of Agricultural Societies, from which this slide is taken between the outward spread of farmers from these assumed halves of domestication, on the one hand, and the present-day distributions and assumed origins of some of the world's great language families, notably the Indo-European language group that links many old and new languages from the Atlantic to the Indus, the Bantu languages of Central and Southern Africa, and the Austronesian languages of Ireland, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Bellwood argued that the dispersal of early farmers from hearths of domestication was a principal process by which these languages or their precursors spread, taking accompanying farming and farmers. In the case of Southeast Asia, his argument is that rice farming began first in mainland China early in the Holocene, and that Neolithic farmers speaking a language that's the origin of the Austronesian languages that are spoken across much of the region today and equipped with pottery, polished stone tools, domestic rice and pigs, then spread south through island Southeast Asia by boat between about 4,500 and 2,000 years ago from Taiwan to the Philippines to Borneo and the Indonesian islands and thence via coastal New Guinea to the Pacific Islands. This so-called express train model implies a a clear cultural break in the regional archaeological record between an indigenous population of foragers and incoming Austronesian farmers, rice farmers. As i was explained in this lecture, though, a wide range of evidence, archaeological, anthropological, genetic, increasingly suggests a far more complicated and interesting story in Ireland's Southeast Asia. So let's start at the beginning, with the arrival in the region, perhaps 60 to 70,000 years ago, of our species, Homo sapiens, as part of its Afri- as out-of-Africa migrations. Recent work in the Nia caves in northern Borneo in Sarawak Has been very informative about the subsistence practices of these rainforest pioneers. The caves are a system of enormous interlinked caverns on the coastal plain of Sarawak, about 15 kilometres from the South China Sea. Several of their entrances, the West Mouth in particular, were the focus of major excavations by Tom and Barbara Harrison in the 1950s and 60s. And since 2000, I've been coordinating a renewed programme of fieldwork in the caves And in the surrounding landscape, largely funded by the HRC. The find that brought the original excavations to international attention was the discovery in 1958 of the so called deep skull. It's an anatomically modern human skull of a teenage girl in a deep sounding called the Hell Trench. Charcoal collected nearby the previous year yielded a radiocarbon date, remember this was 1958, of about 40,000 years ago. At that time, the earliest date for anatomically modern human remains anywhere in the world. New uranium series dates on the skull itself, date it to 37 to 35,000 years ago, and a series of new charcoal dates from its estimated location, mostly obtained by the, the Oxford Laboratory, also indicate that the original date was more or less right, as well as showing that the earliest evidence for human occupation of the cave, as far as we can see, goes back to around 50,000 years ago. The deep skull and the other remains were found by the Harrisons in deposits rich in ash, charcoal, and animal bone that they termed the bone under ash layer. We equate this with a series of organic rich sediments we found within colluvial sediments sloping into the cave from the entrance, just right at the entrance of the cave, containing much ash, charcoal lumps, butchered fragments of animal bone, and occasional stone tools which we interpret as the evidence of people making repeated episodic visits to the site. The analysis of more than 10,000 fragments of animal bone, well, actually, it's about a million fragments of bone, um, in the, the total sample, um, but the bone from the bone under ash layer by Phil Perkins, Ryan Robet, and Gaythorn Cranbrook, the Earl of Cranbrook worked on the material originally as a student in the, uh, in the 50s, has revealed clusters of burnt bone indicating either hearths or dumps of burnt material or burnt material from hearths, fragments of bone with cut marks and chop marks, and several examples of semi-articulated animals implying in-situ butchery. The people using the cave were clearly killing animals in the locality, bringing them back to the cave entrance and butchering and processing them there. Borneo, 50,000 years ago, was part of Sunderland, an enormous landmass created by the lowered sea levels of the late Pleistocene that connected the major islands of the present-day island Southeast Asia to the mainland. The climate was cooler, drier, and more seasonal than now. Today, the caves are surrounded by the primary rainforest of the Nia National Park. But analyses of fossil pollen extracted from the cave sediments by Chris Hunt, one of my collaborators at Queen's Belfast, Indicate that vegetation around the cave 50,000 years ago was a mosaic landscape of savannah, regenerating woodland, dry rainforest, and mangrove swamp. The ecologies of the animals hunted by the Pleistocene foragers also indicate the same sort of mosaic landscape. The main animal they hunted was the bearded pig, followed by orangutan, porcupine, monitor lizard, turtle, along with an array of smaller species like langurs and macaques, snakes, lizards, birds, and bats. The degree of selectivity in the age structure of the pigs, compared with the lack of selectivity in the range of the other taxa killed, is consistent, Phil Perkins and Ramrabet argue, with some form of neck or leg snare trapping. The presence of arboreal species like orangutan and the small primates and some of the larger terrestrial animals implies the use of other technologies as well, such as spears. Though the first definite evidence we've got for hafting technology to modified stingray barbs and tapered Bone points, some of which have got the hafting mastic and fibre binding, date to the end, about 11,000 BP. And large freshwater and estuarine species of fish and turtles are another indication of the use of sophisticated procurement technologies like spears and traps. Botanical remains, parenchyma or plant tissues, studied by Victor Paz, and microscopic starch granules, studied by Hugh Barton. Demonstrate the exploitation of this rainforest, or this mixed landscape around there, but in particular the rainforest, for a variety of roots and tubers, fruits and nuts. They found microscopic plant remains both in the sediments and on the surfaces of the stone tools. The evidence includes the true taro, swamp taro, the forest aroid, the greater yam, the highly toxic but still widely eaten gadong yam, and starch grains of sago. The latter, is the staple plant food of the present-day Penan foragers of Borneo, who fell the adult sago trees and process the pith into a starch-rich flower, and that enables them to live in rainforest. The charred endocarps for a wide variety of nuts include the poisonous Pangumodule. In Australia, traditional aboriginal methods for leaching out toxins in nuts, fruits and seeds, including burying them in pits full of ash for a month or so, And a series of intercutting pits we found in the Westmouth sediments, full of ash and plant remains, there are about 20 pits on that site, all intercutting, is likely to be evidence for this method of plant detoxification, and the Oxford dates from those pits are about 34,000 and 30,000. Also, on the evidence of high incidences of Justicia pollen, an initial coloniser of fired clearings today, Chris Hunt argues that the near foragers from 50,000-odd were deliberately burning the forest, presumably to enhance open or disturbed areas that would have provided good habitats for tubers and those other food plants, and for hunting and trapping animals attracted to those clearings, to those sorts of foods. The sophistication of these, what we might call, forest management strategies, being practiced by modern humans at near 50,000 years ago, very different from our traditional notions of opportunistic foraging parallels evidence elsewhere in the region, in the late Pleistocene and early Holocene. In the Highlands of New Guinea, for example, substantial panological evidence for the clearance and burning of vegetation from 20,000 years ago of the LGM, the Last Glacial Maximum, along with the appearance of heavy stone axes, suggests what Les Groob termed um, some time ago, a strategy of minimal manipulation to enhance the growth of existing forest food plants. Tim Denham and Hugh Barton have proposed the term vegiculture to encompass the variety of plant management strategies practised by these late Pleistocene foragers that included asexual propagation and the deliberate translocation of plants to increase the productivity and the reliability of key foraging patches. Animals may also have been involved in such translocations on the evidence that Pleistocene hunters responsible for transporting the wild couscous, a kind of wallaby, to the island of Mattenbeck on New Island off New Guinea about 20,000 years ago, presumably to enhance the the food, the hunting supplies. At Cook in the highlands of New Guinea, an outstanding program of fieldwork by Jack Golson and his collaborators, including Tim Denham now, has demonstrated that veggie strategies were further developed and intensified through the Holocene emerging recognisably as formalised agriculture long before the putative Austronesian expansion. Pits, stake holes, post holes and runnels on the levees of paleo channels, dated about 8,000 BC, are interpreted as evidence in Tim Denham's words for the planting, digging and tethering of plants and localised drainage in a cultivated plot, probably of taro, given the presence of grains of taro starch on the edges of stone tools, they possibly also have yam, sago, and pandanus. By 5000 BC here, people using well-drained mounds to grow these crops and also banana. The archaeological evidence for the sophistication of Pleistocene and early Holocene subsistence practices chimes with the indications from modern molecular studies for multiple domestication events in different parts of island Southeast Asia, in the case of banana, sugarcane, yam and taro, probably by the early polycene. In the case of banana, phytolith plant silica fragments found recently in secure mid-Holocene archaeological contexts in India and West Africa are evidence for subsequent long-distance dispersals of island Southeast Asian domesticates, the exchange mechanisms for which we can only begin to imagine. The evidence that plants and animals were being exploited and moved around in complicated ways from the time that modern humans arrived in Sunderland through the, late prehistoric, through the late Pleistocene and early Holocene, accords with the complex human demographic history that's emerging from genetic studies of the modern populations of the region. In recent years, Martin Richards' research group at the University of Leeds has undertaken the complete genome sequencing of mitochondrial DNA of a population sample from Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, East Malaysia, and Papua New Guinea. Less than 20% of modern m- m- uh, mitochondrial DNA in the region in Ireland Southeast Asia is likely to have been introduced at the time of the Neolithic, they've shown. Their work has mainly concentrated on haplogroup M9, which is largely restricted to East Asia, Japan, and Ireland Southeast Asia, and is thought to have evolved from the descendants of those first settlers of Sundaland. The most recent study of his group by Pedro Suarez and collaborators has focused within M9 on haplogroup E, which accounts for about 15% of the lineages in Taiwan and island Southeast Asia today. The patterning in the diversity within it suggests strongly that it evolved within island Southeast Asia from the founder populations about 35,000 years ago, and that it expanded dramatically throughout island Southeast Asia around the beginning of the Holocene about 12,000 years ago. At the time when Sundaland was being broken up into the present archipelago by rising sea levels as the climate warmed, you see where the the dates show these branchings off. I don't know if you can go, uh, you can see the I don't know if they're they're legible there, um, but you've got the can't read it from there. So that's the sort of 35,000. And then coming down to 17,000, branching out. That's a 9,000, 10,000 one there. Another break. Um, that's, that's. That M9A on the right, right-hand right side, um, the sister group, uh, that also spread north along the Pacific Rim towards Korea and Japan, presumably as part of the same set of processes. People of haplogroup E reached Taiwan and near Oceania within the past 8,000 years an expansion conceivably related to the last major phase of flooding 7,500 years ago. Three different methods of analysis and analysing the data in the paper all present the same scenarios. It looks inherently likely that the episodes of massive flooding in Sunderland in the train of the massive global warming that began after the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago triggered major displacements of the human groups living on the Sunder coastline and that they played a critical role in shaping subsequent life in the region, including the deliberate movement of plants and animals to cope with people's enforced migrations and the development of the sailing technologies that underpinned these strategies. Until recently, the best evidence for the appearance of domestic rice in island Southeast Asia consisted of charred grains in sediments and inclusions in pottery in the same sediments, at the cave of Guasira in western Sarawak, dated to 2300 BC, in fact excavated by Peter Bellwood and uh, Ipoi Datan, the head of archaeology in Sarawak. A single rice grain was also identified in a potsherd from Nia, dated by association with a burial to about 2000 BC. Other evidence in Island southeast Asia was generally later, such as rice husks in pottery for Andoran in northern Luzon in the Philippines, dated to 1500 BC. These findings were broadly in line with the assumed introduction of rice farming to island Southeast Asia by Austronesian farmers from Taiwan around 2000 BC. They've always been the pillars of the Peter Bellwood model. Current panological studies in Sarawak, though, are suggesting very different scenarios that may relate to this emerging picture of how humans cope with the landscape transformation of the late Pleistocene and Holocene Sunderland. This vast continent was clearly being flooded at different times, and we clearly see from these the, the, the movements that were taking place amongst these populations. Logan Bunet is the largest lake in Borneo, um, not far, about 50 miles from near. It's situated about 60 kilometres inland, but the rivers that flow from it are tidal almost to the lake, the surface of which is only 10 metres above current sea level. In fact, it dries out in some seasons. Chris Hunt was able to take a very deep 40-metre core from the sediments flooring the lake, the entire length of which dates to the early Holocene. It's got about 30 radiocarbon dates now from about 11,200 to 7,000 BP before the present. There's a consistent pattern of heavy burning and forest disturbance throughout the pollen record, as indicated by the charcoal and thermally mature material and the incidence of plants denoting disturbed and open habitats, you can see at the the top. Rice pollen, the poaceae column, occurs only in tiny quantities, but it's impossible to tell whether such pollen belongs to wild or domestic rice. However... The logan-boonet core also contains large quantities of phytoliths, that, in the case of rice, can be separated fairly securely into morphologically wild and morphologically domestic categories by their size and shape. The analysis of the logan-boonet phytoliths by um, a postdoc who worked with Chris, uh, Rasmatheri premethylarchy, indicates that two-thirds of the phytoliths throughout the core are of rice. Remember, this is 11,000-odd to 7,000-odd BP. The remainder consisting of open ground, bamboo and forest species. So the phytolith evidence is consistent with the pollen story of a repeated pattern of forest disturbance throughout the sequence. But it's different in the appearance of morphologically domestic rice after 8,000 BP or 6,000 BC. The pink column on the left denotes phytoliths of of definite wild species, The small red block above it, the little one on the the left-hand side, marks certain cultivated rice. The blue column to their right marks undifferentiated undifferentiated wild rice. Intriguingly, the appearance of the domestic rice phytolith coincides with the appearance of a single phytolith of the exotic Indian mango. We're faced with a remarkable possibility, therefore, that domestic rice actually reached Borneo from mainland Southeast Asia. Whether from China or India, I do not know, not with Austronesian farmer voyages 4,000 years ago, but as part of the plant dispersals in Southeast Asia associated with the major early Holocene population dispersals across the flooding Sundaland archipelago 8,000 years ago. The other possibility, equally remarkable, would be that indigenous wild rices had been domesticated in island Southeast Asia by this time. The natural habitat of the wild rices of Borneo today is, in the inland limits, is on the inland limits of saline water, alongside tidal watercourses behind coastal mangrove swamps. Logan Boonert, at the edge of the coastal mangrove swamps, was the ideal habitat, because that's where we find it. Chris Hunt's current PhD student, Samantha Jones, has recently found phytalis of wild rice in a core taken at Batu Patong, in the Kelabit highlands of Borneo, dating to 6,500 BP. If, as currently supposed, Sam Jones is the woman, right. Um, if, as currently supposed, wild rice didn't grow naturally in the highlands of interior Borneo, the discovery will be further evidence for the translocation of plants by prehistoric foragers in island Southeast Asia as part of those landscape management strategies. Whatever its previous history, in terms of introductions or local domestications, on the evidence of Logan Boonet, certainly rice was part down where it occurred, they knew about it, they were using it and so on, in those coastal areas. But by the sixth millennium BC, rice, whatever was happening was, was such that the morphological changes had taken place to indicate rice cultivation, was being practised in lowland Borneo where appropriate environmental conditions prevailed, incorporated into strategies of forest management and vegiculture that had been practised there on the near evidence from 50,000 years ago. Chris Hunt has also taken two pollen cores within the environs of Near Cave, which overlap with and follow on chronologically from the Logan Boonet core. They indicate an early Holocene landscape dominated by mangrove swamps, prior to 7,500 B.P., 5,500 so B.C., an environment that would have been too saline for rice to grow. So we you know sort of 50 miles away, the rice was growing and was being used. And here, it's not there. It's the, the saline landscape. Around 6,000 B.P., which is the line across the uh, pollen diagram, there's considerable evidence, so this is about 4,000 B.C., there's considerable evidence for burning the charcoal in the left-hand sediment log, the spotty stuff, accompanied by a sharp rise in vegetation types of open ground, presumably forest clearance. Rice-type pollen also occurs at and after 6,000 BP. Chris describes the rice pollen as unequivocal cereal grains in all aspects similar to modern rice pollen, but unfortunately it's impossible to distinguish between morphologically wild and morphologically domestic rice from pollen grains, and there are three or four wild species of rice known to grow in Sarawak. Hence, the wild or domestic status, formally, of these um, grains is unclear, though the combination of burning forest clearance and the appearance of rice is clearly suggestive of cultivation 2,000 years before the occurrence of the grains of domestic rice at Guasira and Nia. The vitalists have yet to be studied. Whatever people were doing in the landscape around Nia at 4000 BC, it coincides with what appears to have been a marked hiatus in the use of the caves. But clearly, people around the landscape and using it intentionally are having all these landscape impacts with this rice put up past whatever it might be, the rice pollen. So the West Mouth appears to have been visited by foragers and used as a place of burial in the first three or four millennia of the Holocene. A series of flexed burials, excavated by the Harrisons on the inward side of the main Pleistocene occupation burial zone, those burials probably dates to the 8th and 7th millennia B.C. The positioning of the bodies links them to the Pleistocene burial rituals, in that flex burial was used in both periods. But the early Holocene burials were placed in a seated position, in f- pits over fires lit at the time of burial. This a big pit and put, put the body sitting in on the fire. There then appears to be a gap in the burial sequence, from about 6,500 BC to about 1,500 BC. So people are around in the landscape, clearly from the pollen diagrams, but they're not using this particular cave for burial. The west mouth then, after 1,500 BC, the so-called time of the Austronesian event, became the location for over 200 burials, what's probably the largest excavated prehistoric cemetery in Ireland, Southeast Asia. It was brilliantly excavated by Barbara Harrison in the 50s and 60s. And it's been reanalyzed for his recent PhD by my student, um, Lindsay Lloyd Smith. His thesis made possible by the immaculate records that Barbara left. She was never able to publish for um, the, the full, those reports that she's left. She wrote one main report. But she left these absolutely uh, immaculate records of all the burials. And she's been hugely supportive of his study and helped him work with him, despite her increasing infirmity. Tom Harrison died in the mid-70s, so Barbara's alive. (coughs) Burial practices included flexed inhumations, extended inhumations in coffins or shrouds, and the secondary burial of body parts, sometimes cremated, sometimes in multiple groups of individuals in jars. The inhumations suggest that some bodies were buried opportunistically if a death occurred during people's visits to the cave, the cremation jar burials that the remains of selected individuals who died elsewhere were brought to the cave for burial. They're all photographs from the the Harrison excavations. Lindsay's reanalysis has indicated that the Neolithic cemetery divides into a central burial group surrounded by four smaller satellite groups. He's been able to establish a detailed chronology for the cemetery's development, thanks to a suite of dates from the Oxford Radiocarbon Facility under the ORAD scheme. It began with a few flexed burials, a few dispersed flexed burials similar to those of the late Pleistocene and early Holocene, but that are clearly of this, so in a sense you've got these Neolithic burials, but they're clearly of the same type as before, before this long gap. Between about 1300 B.C. and 1000 B.C., a formalised cemetery was laid out of rows of extended burials, mostly of individuals in wooden coffins, but sometimes simply wrapped in a shroud. Grave goods included pots, stone axes and grinders, beads, basketry and textiles. The first jar burials date to this period. The main rite in the period 1000 to 750 B.C., consisted of secondary burials of bodies previously buried elsewhere. Some of the human bones have distinctive weathered and exfoliated surfaces, suggesting prolonged periods of exposure. So in some instances, perhaps flesh was removed at initial burial rites and then a selection of bones reinterred in a secondary burial ritual. The bones were placed in a variety of containers as well as in big jars, for example in bamboo caskets. Cremation became the dominant way of dealing with the dead in the period 800 to 500 BC, but in the last few centuries BC, there was then a reversion to non-burnt secondary burial, and finally to primary extended burial. They went back to using the, the, the methods they'd used several centuries before, with coffins being reopened for later burials in some cases. There are subtle differences in the arm positions of the extended burials in the cemetery. And they appear to reflect a combination of the group as the family in which a body was buried and the gender of the person. The positions appear to be associated primarily with adults. There's been a recent strontium isotope analysis by Benjamin Valentine and George Kamloff, their students working with John Krigbaum in Gainesville in Florida. And they indicate that some of the individuals buried in the Westmouth, especially women, we're well, not from the immediate locality of the caves, but from the interior. It looks like that the males are largely they've got a coastal signature. And some of these, and when there are some of the women do have coastal too, but there were these women with this inland signature. A possible interpretation is that different lineages with distinct ancestral traditions used different parts of the cemetery over time, and that marriage exchange was a feature of these societies. Further family-like clusters can also be identified in the secondary burials. You get complete groups of bodies um, in these jars. Many graves were flanked by wooden grave markers, presumably to mark their location for later burials. Interestingly, the relationships between arm positions, gender, and local or exotic strontium signatures at a nearby burial cave that Lindsay studied, Lobang Jerigang, that's never been. Published So Batounir on that is simply the, the modern settlement. You can see where the near caves are in the park and Lobengjerrigan. Those signatures are all very different to those of the West Mouth. So the arm positions are different, the, the, the signatures are different, um, the, you know, the, the linkages between these different positions you saw. Leading Lindsay to conclude that even at this local scale, the societies burying their dead at near were variously characterised by matrilocal and patrilocal post-marital residency, where where husbands or wives move with marriage. The Austronesian model predicts a clear dichotomy between indigenous pre-Neolithic foragers and incoming Neolithic farmers, but the near evidence doesn't support this. In addition to the continuity of the flex burials mentioned before, computer modelling of skull morphology by her PhD by Jessica Manser at uh, New York University with Terry Harrison, has demonstrated that the pre-Neolithic and the Neolithic Neolithic people buried in the cave are of exactly the same physical type. And John Krigbaum also did a PhD. He's now an Professor at um, Gainesville, Florida, but he did his PhD with Terry Harrison also um, in New York. And he undertook a pioneering study of isotope analyses of the bone chemistry of the neoskeletons, and this was undertaken before Lindsay established the detailed cemetery chronology, so he largely just had kind of pre-Neolithic and Neolithic when he divided them. And that study indicates that the pre-Neolithic people buried in the cave in the early Holocene consumed a diet extracted from a predominantly closed canopy forested landscape, whereas Neolithic people consumed a diet from more open environments. John took the latter to mean cultivated landscapes, open landscapes equals cultivated landscapes, then the only evidence for agriculture associated with the cemetery is that single grain of rice in a vessel from an early-phase Neolithic burial, which could, of course, be imported from elsewhere. However that may be, what is intriguing is that the isotope signatures of the burials that Lindsay can now ascribe to the final phase of the cemetery, around 400 to 200 BC, which include these flexed burials of pre-Neolithic type so that in Meryl, are of closed canopy, suggesting an abandonment of cultivation and a reversal to forest foraging and perhaps vegiculture. Well, actually, the other thing he's also suggesting that we may find, it may also be, of course, I mean, one of the things that the Penan do is they survive also by exchanging forest products with, with other peoples outside. So it's conceivable that something's going on there in terms of um, in fact, people often said, are the Penan kind of remnants of long-lived hunter-gatherers or are they actually people who've, who've developed ways of living in the forest and, and foraging but extracting forest products to trade as a result of agricultural populations? It's unclear. In fact, on the evidence of pottery tempers studied by Chris Docherty here and Paul Beavitt from a suite of excavated Neolithic, Metal Age and historic sites in Sarawak, what they did is they they went through all the ceramics in Sarawak Museum um, and looked for um, traces of rice temper. Um, Now, obviously, rice temper tells you about rice is around so much or whatever that they're using the rice straw to use as temper in the pot. So, obviously, it's it's kind of a proxy indicator um, with caution for the amount of rice cultivation. Anyway, from that study, they looked at the Neolithic, the Metal Age, historic sites what they showed is that rice may not have been widely grown until the period of European colonialism. And panological studies in the interior of Borneo have also indicate that rice cultivation only became dominant there in the last few hundred years. So it may be that it was only in the aftermath of the spice trade um, and the whole business of European colonialism that many communities in Ireland, Southeast Asia, actually engaged in rice production on a large scale in terms of having a trading resource with these incomers. So we're left with the fact that rice was very probably being cultivated intermittently from 6,000 BC, was possibly being grown around near around 4,000 BC, was certainly being used by people at Guasira in western Sarawak around 2,000 BC, and perhaps around near in the second and first millennia BC, our single grain. But it only became a widely grown crop a few centuries ago. So what was its role beforehand? Today, in Southeast Asia, the plants of both field and forest have complex meanings for people, as well as providing sustenance. But rice is regarded as particularly closely linked to, in effect, kin of, humans and the human body. Its cultivation dominates the economic, cultural, and social lives of almost every inhabitant of island Southeast Asia, urban and rural. In Borneo, rice has sacred or quasi sacred status. Its growing is highly ritualized, and growing it and eating it are associated with status and prestige. Eating rice is associated with proximity to the spirits and the ancestors, a mark of high status. The very whiteness of rice may well be significant here, as white is the colour of the spirits. The hierarchy associated with rice growing doesn't necessarily bring with it a different standard of living or a separation from others, at least not amongst the small tribal societies. The motivation for going to all the trouble of growing rice and feeding others appears to be primarily status itself. In the interior of the highland interior of Sarawak, which is this box down on the right-hand side. Rice acts as a symbolic differentiator between two lifestyles perceived by their practitioners to be radically different, that of the rice-growing Kalabit and the sago-managing Penan. The, fo- uh, the focus of a study by a project that I'm coordinating entitled The Cultural Rainforest, which is bringing together a team of archaeologists, anthropologists, and geographers, in the study of the long-term and present-day interactions between people and rainforest. The title actually came from Chris Gosden, who's one of the collaborators, and we also have Monica Janowski, an anthropologist who lived in one of the Colabic villages, did a PhD from the 80s and has worked with the community there all the time. Um, Hugh Barton, the starch guy, who's also involved in this project, who's at Leicester, Um, and Chris um, Hunt, the palynologist at Belfast. The area is inhabited by these Kalabit rice farmers and Penan foragers, but as with most rainforest peoples, there is no simple dichotomy between the two modes of subsistence. The Calabit grow wet rice on permanent irrigated fields and hill rice on temporary clearings in the forest, and are emphatic about their status as rice farmers, although they in fact rely heavily on the forest for much of their subsistence. The Penan hunt and gather in the forest but they also rely heavily on sago starch as a staple, carefully managing groves of sago trees, for example, by protecting them from competitive vegetation and transplanting them to suitable habitats. It's called malong protection. The landscape is a mosaic of rice fields, areas of secondary growth full of species which have been planted, transplanted or encouraged to grow, and pristine, in inverted commas, forest. Rather than a clear distinction between foraging and farming, the uses of the wild and or managed plant-protected resources for both peoples are inextricably entangled. Yet despite this entanglement in everyday subsistence practices, the cosmologies and worldviews of the Calabit and Penan are strikingly different. The Penan's attitude to the forest involves a fundamental awe. They're very anxious that their protection or melong of Sago and other plants is sustainable, and doesn't invoke the wrath of supernatural powers, and they explicitly state that they aim to leave only footsteps in the forest. The Kalabit, by contrast, see themselves as both custodians and exploiters of the wild resources of the forest, believing that they not only belong to the landscape, but somehow own it. They express this relationship by making a variety of marks, too, in the forest, constructing wet and, r- and dry rice fields. You can see there the, the wet fields at the top and then dry field clearances and see if the plain below. So constructing the fields, they see as very much a, the making, taking their separateness from the forest, maintaining pathways through the forest, um, erecting stones, carving prominent boulders, maintaining elaborate and long-lived cemeteries, carving ceremonial ditches across ridges, and constructing stone mounds. They believe that the archaeological monuments in the forest are two made by ancestral cultural heroes, proof of the Calabit's ancient ancestry and linking to that time of power. This doesn't mean that the Calabit don't continue to depend on the forest, or that they couldn't go back to complete reliance on the forest if they wished an ever-present possibility lived out by young men on a daily basis in their hunting. They constantly, every day, make a choice to construct a different way of life. So these two societies share many similarities in their place on the spectrum between foraging and farming, or their mix of foraging and farming, yet have entirely separate world views. Given the antiquity and efficacy of vegiculture culture in Southeast Asia, it's easy to imagine how rice might have been actively resisted by the prehistoric populations of the region as they began to encounter it through the Holocene. And see, well, because they, and if the stuff was growing there also because they were encountering it um, from the first time they got there, down by those edges of the mangroves. For forest-based foragers and vegiculturalists, engaging in rice cultivation could well have represented the other, the psychological separation from the forest as it does for the Penan today. Hugh Barton and Tim Denham suggested the emerging evidence from Borneo, New Guinea and elsewhere May in part be recording a history of resistance to rice as a cultivar, the crop being grafted onto rather than replacing existing loved, long-lived practices of plant-people relationships that have been established in the Pleistocene. This people-plant continuum wasn't swept aside by the introduction of new plants and new ways of doing things of constructing fields as well as making clearings or enhancing clearings or just leaving steps in the forest, which is why I took this title of the lecture. Presumably, abrupt change was often resisted in favour of maintaining existing social practices. Nevertheless, however small scale its cultivation and dietary contribution at these different times, from, as we see, from 8,000 BC onwards, so from the time of its... Rice probably had an important social role from the time of its first introduction or domestication with a profound capacity to transform social practices within and between communities. So you can like, see, like, at, um, in some instances, it was possible to use this thing as a minor way, but at some stage, something very different happens. The small quantities of rice being found in the archaeological and panological record of Island Southeast Asia as Hugh Barton and Tim Denham have commented, are likely to be more about cultivating social relationships than cultivating plants. Growing rice, whether as a wet crop or on dry land, is a risky enterprise with potentially low returns, particularly without metal tools or buffaloes. And rice doesn't present an obvious candidate for domestication, since in the wild it tends to reproduce vegetatively rather than by seed, and the labour costs of gathering the easily shattering seed are very high. Brian Hayden has argued in several papers that the special palatability of rice led to its gathering and eventual domestication, in the context of feasting occasions amongst forager communities, he theorises, as a way of projecting status, one of the most important ways in which rice was consumed perhaps being as alcohol. As I've tried to demonstrate in this lecture, a complicated, ambiguous, but fascinating story is emerging in island Southeast Asia about foraging, farming transitions and interactions. So it, is, it very much isn't, if you like, from steps to clearings to uh, fields. So it's very much not, you know, from from walking in the forest and hunting to the veggie culture. So it's it's not that kind of evolution thing. We clearly see those things from a very early stage, at least certainly the first two, and the latter then kind of joins it, and we can see all of those things today and in the recent past. So that story is emerging about foraging, farming transitions and interactions. So, interactions rather than transitions, raising entirely new questions about how, over many millennia, neighbouring and far distant communities engage with each other. Those lists of banana in West Africa. God knows what's going on. Mango from India turning up in Borneo. How and why particular forager communities reacted to new technologies, new food resources, new ideas, new cosmologies in what particular circumstances they regarded them as threats or opportunities, and why they took the decisions they did about them. So where are we left then with those Austronesian voyager farmers? Clearly that model, as currently presented, looks increasingly unfit for purpose. And in many ways what's interesting is the sort of things I've been talking about, in many ways you can see in the speculations of people up to the 50s and 60s, about the kind of potential complexities and long-lived ancestries of domestication processes in Southeast Asia. And the Austronesian language model is kind of a completely straight-jacketed debate, kind of said something goes on at, you know, 2000 BC. Yet it remains true that there were significant changes in aspects of material culture across much of Island Southeast Asia in the second millennium BC, the time when Neolithic burial practices began in the Near cave. In a recently completed PhD that I'm examining at the moment, so I've cribbed from it, um, written by Mary Kelly, who's ANU in Canberra, she's carried out a detailed regional assessment of Neolithic red-slip pottery assemblages, dating to about 1500 BC, assumed in the Bellwood model, in fact she's a Peter Bellwood student, but assumed in the Bellwood model to be the primary indicator of the Austronesian farmer voyages. This is the great signature. She demonstrates that whilst the assemblages of sites within different regions in Ireland and Southeast Asia commonly share similarities, at the inter-regional level such links fall away and there's no evidence of directionality in terms of, you know, a sort of Taiwan development out of it. And I think I should have mentioned, of course, the, the, um, the genetics actually, the directionality in terms of Taiwan is from the other way, sort of colonised from southward upwards. She demonstrates that, whilst the assemblages of sites within different regions of island Southeast Asia... So there's, no, there's that no evidence of directionality. Lindsay Lloyd Smith has also shown that the same is true of the jar burial tradition, another signature of Austronesian culture, across island Southeast Asia. Different components of a widespread material culture were selected and used in very different ways in different regions. Bringing the focus right down still more, Current research by Franca Cole for her PhD with me in Cambridge on unpublished ceramic assemblages excavated by the Harrisons from a series of near-burial caves is demonstrating widely divergent ceramic-related mortuary practices at contemporary burial sites only a few hundred metres apart. Mary Kelly suggests that the loosely shared aspects of material culture represented by the pottery and other artefacts may be an outward indicator not only of the reduction of isolation of local populations at this time, but perhaps of the emergence of elite social groups buying into components of neolithic material culture as part of the process of signification and display. I haven't read her argument yet for why the elite social groups. It was two in the morning as I was mining her thesis for this, (laughs) so that comes. But we can imagine how rice growing and rice eating were, could, have been, could be an important component of such a process, of this um, emergence of elite social groups using these components of material culture as parts of this process of signification and display. And did these new behaviours and worldviews, that weren't transforming, but, did these new behaviours and worldviews link with new forms of language? I have no idea. But the archaeological and genetic complexities that I've described in this lecture suggest that it would be helpful if linguistic theories, you know, if, if the linguists could explore alternative scenarios about the kind of historical processes that have resulted in the present-day distribution of the Austronesian languages. So in a sense, none of this other evidence that they've described fits that, Austrani- that interpretation of the linguists of the Austronesian model. But in the end, somehow, I assume we have to try to reconcile the linguistics. Thank you.